1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Stark from Vanderbilt University. This interview was a collaborative effort among myself and 40 undergraduates in the Vanderbilt course, American Medicine and the World. For ideas and sample assignments on building the New Books Network into pedagogical practice, please send me an email. I'm talking today with Nancy Campbell about the important new book, O.D., Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose, out in 2020 from MIT Press. Campbell is Chair of Department in Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, author of four previous books and numerous articles, and maker of many creative projects on science, STS theory, and social justice. I suspect you'll appreciate this book if you're also a fan of Stephen Epstein's Impure Science on Relations Between HIV-AIDS Activists, Needle Exchange Networks, and Federal Scientists, Michelle Murphy's Seizing the Means of Reproduction on Embodied Evidence, Angela Garcia's Pastoral Clinic on the Agency of Landscape and Place in Addiction, Amy Hemry's Building Access on the Politics of Expertise, and Joanna Radin's Life on Ice, Exploring Technoscience, Promises to Manage Time, Its Pause, and even its Reversal. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Professor Nancy Campbell, thank you so much for joining us and listeners of the New Books Network for our interview today. To give a a bit of a context for listeners, this is a collaborative interview between me, um, Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University, and 40 undergraduate students in a course called American Medicine in the World. So we are collaboratively um, doing an interview with with you, Nancy, um, and it's a delight to have you here. You are the chair of the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the Rensselaer uh, Polytechnic Institute, and also the author of the new book, OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose from MIT Press. So to give a bit more context, the book itself is about overdose and um, particularly focusing on um, the opioid drugs. Probably the best known among those um, four folks is heroin and the most common uh, form of administration is intravenous administration. And People might be familiar um, uh, from things like the death of the actor Philip Seymour Hoffman or closer to my own generation, the death of Kurt Cobain. Um, But one of the things that you point out um, um, repeatedly in the book that's really useful in different historical moments is how um, this this thing that bedevils the expert and policy communities but is, of course, common knowledge for activist and user-led Um, activist communities, which is the practice that's called stacking or polydrug overdose, which is that there's no easy, clear, causal connection between overdose. And it's also highly um, environmentally contextually specific as well, which is really interesting. Um, So the book brings together questions of politics of evidence and expertise about activism and social movements and how they interact with expert communities. One of the things we really admired was that you don't have a really homogenous sense of activist or expert communities, that they're not caricatures, but you see activists and experts sometimes um, playing a role in each of these different um, positions and movements, which is is really useful. And I think um, uh, uh, generous really generous in a good way. Um, And one of the key terms, phrases that comes up throughout the books is thinking of naloxone, which can counteract overdose as a technology of solidarity. So the other big context with that in mind is that we're speaking on the first day of December in 2020 going into um, the first winter of the COVID-19 pandemic, in which we have no treatment um, or prevention in the form of a vaccine currently at any any large scale. And many of the themes we found helped um, clarify and understand the COVID pandemic while looking at the opioid epidemic in this way. Um, So things like stigma surrounding people's social practices, whether it's drug use or social contact or wearing a mask. Um, Things like harm reduction strategies, whether it's good just to have people make things um, as you as you write echoing um, a California-based activist movement any positive change, or whether things like in the COVID pandemic, uh, lockdown is is what we should be going for. And how there are different patchy ways of responding to um, public health crises and potential deaths and that how it's tremendously racially unequal. One of the other big themes um, and connections between uh, reading this book about um, overdose and and the opioid epidemic in some ways, um, and the COVID-19 pandemic is around policing. And so we wanted to start off by asking you to um, open up for us how the different earlier antidotes to overdose were used in the early 20th century not to prevent deaths, but actually to police drug use. Can you talk about policing and overdose?
0: Yeah, so overdose... Um, And and I think you're thinking about technologies of suspicion, as I called them. I've been very interested in technologies of suspicion. You might know these as drug tests with your hair or with uh, your saliva or sweat. Um, And so I had written somewhat about technologies of suspicion long before I conceived of this book. This book grew out of Um, my becoming familiar with what uh, harm reduction activists were doing. And so I suppose it's not surprising that I tell a narrative arc that moves from when nalorphine, the first narcotic antagonist, was used as a technology of suspicion to uh, this movement in the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s to use naloxone um, uh, in many ways, the second or the next uh, narcotic antagonist to come down the pike as a technology of solidarity. So I have been very interested in uh, the activists enrollment of um, the uh, first responders, including law enforcement in the use of naloxone because they were often first on the scene of an overdose. And so they had the most um, agency in determining how an overdose would be handled. And the uh, activists often had to really get over their own uh, distance from and resistance to the police, to the sheriff's department, my own sheriff's department here in Rensselaer County started carrying Naloxone in 2012. And they were one of the first uh, sheriff's departments in the entire country to carry Naloxone. And that was because there was a series of overdose deaths in a high school, a rural high school, about, I would say, maybe 10 miles from where I live in Troy, New York. And so they had begun uh, uh, carrying Naloxone. But of course, police carrying anything um, can raise uh, suspicion, and it can kind of raise the temperature of um, any incident or event, uh, and so it was. It's been very interesting to me to see how. Uh, People have to kind of make their do their own little journey, um, moving from technologies of suspicion to technologies of solidarity um, in order to understand what's happening with with naloxone today. Now, today in my own county, you can get curbside delivery. So back to what uh, Professor Stark was saying earlier about um, the way in which the pandemic, I, I kind of think of it like the caduceus, right? the uh, pandemic and the overdose um, uh, epidemic kind of wind around each other like those two reptiles in the caduceus. Um, And in my own county, uh, overdose deaths in 2020 still outstrip COVID-19 deaths in 2020. And so there is a way in which a lot of the harm reduction tactics that I write about in OD, are not well suited to a situation like the pandemic. So the technologies of solidarity in a lot of ways, um, don't suit the condition of social isolation that we all find ourselves in today. And what's always interesting to me about harm reduction is that typically uh, people come up with other ways of doing things. They're pretty resourceful and they figure out how to get uh, curbside delivery of naloxone, and they figure out how you can do that without, um, uh, you know, coming into contact with other people. And so I think that in some ways, the movement can do that. But in other ways, there's a kind of material stop to that, which is that you really, although there are some people who say you can use naloxone on yourself, you really aren't in a frame of mind typically to self administer naloxone. And so if you truly are alone, um, it is the harm reduction tenant. The first tenant really is never use alone. And yet how many of us um, are in that situation where we are spending a lot more time alone than we used to. So in some ways, technologies of solidarity are just not well suited to where we are now. And so, uh, we will have to, uh, think of other ways to respond, uh, to the twinned, uh, kind of nature of the epidemics. The, um,
1: the story of naloxone is also so interesting because you show how, um, even when, uh, these earlier, uh, forms of antidote, of remedy, were being used in in policing, to police uh, uh, drug use in the earlier 20th century. These technologies then um, were used among scientists, but they were really interested um, in trying to understand um, brain chemistry and neurobiopsychiatry and and these sorts of things, not directed towards um, seeing it as a a life-saving technology. Um, and then the, the naloxone was uh, approved by the FDA in 1971, is that, am I remembering that correctly? That's and, right. And even then, it was still sequestered within experts' um, communities, although there, there started to be um, patchy groups of activists who were the ones who were creating this embodied evidence um, and these, the, the embodied forms of knowledge around the fact that naloxone could be used to address an overdose um, and to avoid a death in an an overdose. And what you show is um, how some of the the tactics and strategies of other activist movements really helped these smaller groups working in California, in Chicago, in Boston, Massachusetts, um, coming out of the HIV-AIDS activism organizations really knitted with broader harm reduction um, activist groups, including folks who are interested in overdose and working working against overdose. So here, I'm going to hand the mic over to Maya to follow up on activist communities um, and HIV AIDS groups that you address in the book, Nancy.
0: Thank you so much again for being here today um so you mentioned earlier how things have kind of changed with the pandemic and how certain harm reduction strategies have had to readjust and we've seen a current uprise in drug use and drug related overdoses with the pandemic so we are wondering if um any of the harm reduction strategies have helped fix this or ameliate the drug use issues and the drug overdose and what strategies have been put in place to overcome the barriers that come with the pandemic. It's really interesting. I, I think we're still waiting. Well, no, I guess we have seen a few, maybe you have your own favorites, um, uh, sort of, uh, sardonic or, um, uh, kind of commentary on the way in which the pandemic is being handled. Uh, one of the things that the HIV AIDS movement did particularly well, I think, was it tapped into a a vein of, um, of humor, Of uh, You might call it gallows humor. You might find it, but it was irreverent and it was often really in your face. And so one of the uh, joys of, of this particular book is that about half of the illustrations in the book are from a zine that was made by Santa Cruz Needle Exchange. And in it, they really, um, I think took that pushed what I just said to, to an extreme. Um, and so sometimes, uh, I think that's pretty important in this epidemic, um, there has been, of course, a lot of emphasis on public health. There has been a lot of politics around uh, what we should or should not do in terms of public health. And there hasn't been much room yet. I think for a movement to come along like the HIV AIDS movement, or even the women's health movement um, before the HIV AIDS movement. And one of the things that I was sorry, I didn't get a chance to do a little more was, Think about that in terms of the women's health movement, because I do think that this matter of people taking into their own hands um, their their matters of health, um, matters of the body, uh, these um, are not as uh, for coming forward in this epidemic as are the more official public healthy kinds of ways of thinking and doing things. And so I kind of missed that. And uh, I I hope that that will um, eventually happening, not that it shouldn't be taken seriously, um, but that many young people and many people who um, are disbelieving about the realities of the situation um, might benefit from a little bit more, a a lighter touch um, and a little bit more um, laced with humor in the ways that the Santa Cruz Needle Exchange uh, materials were really giving us.
1: Um, In chapter six in particular, Nancy, we really, really admired your use of visual evidence as a historian to show how these California groups, and I think it was specifically the Santa Cruz group, um, was doing peer education. And to, to think about how education is a, um, could be done in community terms, not an individual intervention uh, to necessarily change a, a person's behavior because it was wrong. So thinking about the use of zines um, in the early 90s, for the sort of peer education. And um, particularly sort of this aesthetic of, of harm reduction and this, um, this sardonic style you're talking about really coming through in the images that you show in the book of junk food, uh, food spelled P-H-O-O-D. Um, and so to follow up on this, I wanna hand the mic over to Jeanette.
0: Hello, Um, thank you again so much for being here. Um, So like Professor Stark said in chapter six, you do talk about um, zines like junk food and how um, harm reduction activists use those to educate um, drug users about overdose and naloxone. So I was wondering in all of your time studying OD and naloxone and all of that, um, have you seen like a change, especially now that we're in the digital age, have you seen like a change in how activists um, like, I'm sorry. Have you seen a change in how activists approach um, harm reduction, especially with the recent gains and losses in the harm reduction movement? Yes. So the, um, the advent obviously of the internet, uh, did mean that activists in some ways had an easier time of getting material out, but there's a tremendous backlog of visual material. Um, I, i um, on Instagram and I subscribe to Ward 5B, which is a channel um, that centers uh, very early kind of stone from Stonewall forward um, gay, lesbian, uh, bi, trans liberation type um, graphics. And um, some of that is uh, part of the HIV AIDS movement story, but some of that is, um, much more, uh, it's much beyond uh, the sort of public health story. So what I was really interested in was the way in which these activists in San Francisco, in in Santa Cruz, in Chicago, the Chicago Recovery Alliance did a lot of this. They had to invent their own protocols and overdose prevention education really did come out straight out of this harm reduction movement. They were trying to figure out how to keep each other safe and how to intervene if one of them did get into um, an overdose situation. And so it was really an interesting interaction also with scientists and researchers who were ethnographers or doing um, what I would call shoe leather ethnography. Uh, They were really working directly with uh, the people that they were that that they were, uh, who were their informants, I suppose. Um, And so I had been very curious about um, historical generations of ethnography, uh, ethnography um, as a kind of almost um, art aesthetic, um, as a a means of expression. And so I had written about that uh, before. And so I do think that there's been changes in terms of Um, Who uses much more uh, what we might say gritty realism versus um, groups that are using less realistic, often science fiction or speculative fiction oriented um, aesthetics, as did Santa Cruz Needle Exchange and uh, the Harm Reduction Coalition uh, and, and these are international now and national organizations that um, have created whole new um, uh, kind of genres uh, like harm reduction photography. Um, I was very honored to be able to include in the book a photograph of Dan Big, taken by Nigel Brunston, uh, who's a British uh, harm reduction photographer. And uh, he does such uh, a variety of work that uh, it that it has his uh, signature, really, but it's very different kind, kinds of work. So, yeah, I've been privileged, I would say honored to watch the movement change. The movement has gone, is very sophisticated in certain ways around uh, political framing and around how uh, harm is represented and constructed. Uh, And that has changed over time considerably so that it's much more um, better integrated today in a way uh, with uh, public health messaging than it was in the in the early days, so it's really been uh, interesting to watch it uh, in a sense uh, mature.
1: The book documents so nicely how things like visual evidence and um, individual anecdotal evidence. So uh, for example, I I especially want to flag for listeners that the book also um, does comparative work with the UK and particularly looking at sort of the exemplar case of Scotland. And in these cases, in these in these uh, yeah cases, there are um, there's a a priority given to different forms of evidence, um, and also hearkening back to your own comments, um, Professor Campbell, about the women's health movement, and your your own references in the book to Michelle Murphy's work um, on counter practices and, and seizing the means of reproduction. So thinking about what counts as evidence and what can convince, for example, um, evidence-based policymakers, as opposed to what convinces um, peer, people in peer-to-peer education and how the randomized control trial still continues to present a real challenge um, against which uh, the forms of, of illness and potential death that don't fit into RCT protocols, either for re- ethical reasons or because the, um, the, the fabricated categories of RCTs uh, don't work in these contexts. Um, so, thinking about these historical um, uh, receptions of different forms of images and of stigma, and another really key thing we want to also um, point out here is the, the racialized presentation of the disease, where as you write, it always seems to be a surprise. Um, that white communities are involved because of this, uh, which is not true, uh, that this that it has not always been the case because of the stigma surrounding drug use and drug overdose. And so here I want to hand the mic over to Olivia.
0: Thank you. So like uh, Dr. Stark said, our group was really interested in the idea of stigma. And we were wondering if you think that historical perceptions of drug use culture still affect those who, um, or still affect who suffers the most from preventable overdose deaths today? And further, do you think the stigma detrimentally affects the grieving process of those who lose someone to a drug-related death? Definitely. Um, I, I do. So I've been very interested in what I've called uh, in another work, um, the cultural repository of uh, imagery around uh, drug use, drug, drug addiction, even the term addiction itself, um, which uh, continues, uh, uh, one of my books was about uh, the way in which doctors and researchers, clinicians who worked with uh, People who use drugs tried as early as the 1920s to destigmatize uh, opioid use and particularly to disconnect uh, drugs and crime from one another uh, so that uh, drug addicts were not seen solely as criminals but also as patients and so this work um, has both succeeded and failed over and over. Um, We have tried uh, to really engage the problem of stigma which is suspected to and really has been shown to increase um, uh, shame and other parts of the cycle that keep people Locked into um, behaviors that are clearly very bad for them and their relationships, and so to um, so I think stigma is a very big part of the picture, and I think that it's very interesting that we know that and yet we somehow keep reproducing it. That's how I started thinking about Michelle Murphy's work on um, uh, reproduction. So the. Um, I wanted to tell you um, I, uh, about the um, uh, the first part of your question. Could you repeat it again? Because it's the phrase kind of f- fled out of my head. Absolutely. So the first part of our question was whether or not you think historical perceptions of drug use culture still affect group which groups suffer the most um, from preventable overdose deaths. Yes. So. I wanted to also talk to say very clearly that it has been white uh, people who have by far been the majority, particularly of opioid users, since the 19th century. Okay, so the uh, women, white women who looked like me, uh, white, upper and middle class women were the majority of opioid users in the 19th century. The United States was the world's most voracious consumer. Of opioids, which have been produced. Eight, uh, morphine was synthesized in 1805. And of course, there was a massive colonial apparatus to get opioids spread all across the globe. And our country was one that um, was a, a real consumer of, of these of these products, which showed up of course in proprietary and patent medicines as well. So from that point forward, um, the racialization of the opioid um, epidemic should have been white um, but beginning in the um, in the attempts to get the Harrison Act, um, in, which passed in 1914 and which effectively criminalized narcotics, uh, there began to be a racialization, a popular racialization, um, as if uh, African-Americans and people from communities of color had access to opioids, which historically they didn't. Um, and in fact, um, needles and syringes were not really available available um, until after World War II. So right after World War II, there's an intense racialization of um, heroin in particular, but opioids uh, generally. And um, that would include white ethnic um, individuals. So Puerto Rican and uh, even Jewish uh, uh, folks in New York were often understood to be using um, opioids. So, this racialization really catches hold and uh, becomes very pronounced and pointed in the 1970s. And then, of course, as you all probably know, in the 1980s, crack cocaine comes along and really heightens that effect. Even though it's not an opioid, um, it really heightens the effect of racialization and the criminalization and therefore the stigmatization of drug use more, more generally. So these kinds of patterns, um, have, uh, made overdose uh, endemic in communities of color and uh, less endemic in white communities, even though it was often white people who were dying um, in um, the, because drug markets were located within urban communities of color. So what we are seeing today is very different um, in that uh, the, the um, effect on small cities, on cities that um, are, are more white than not, uh, in the Midwest, et cetera, right? Suddenly have access to opioids and to needles and syringes that they did not have before. And so those kinds of population shifts have been, they were very hard to trace in this book. Um, because, uh, because of the stigma surrounding, um, opioid overdose, um, Many times opioid overdose wasn't mentioned on death certificates and uh, cities did not keep track of it. Uh, You've probably all run into the situation where people are said to quote, die in their sleep. Um, And those are often opioid overdoses, but they would never be tracked trackable on a death certificate. So one of the reasons I turned to Scotland to get back to that question about the more comparative um, frame of the book um, was because they too have a very high, um, unfortunately um, overdose death rate and um, they were a majority white uh, kind of population. And so I wanted to um, make that uh, kind of uh, comparison uh, very clear
1: the um the way in which you um, use Scotland as a as a case to think alongside the United States in um, naloxone as a technology of solidarity um, really goes to show also the the form that your research took and how important it is for um, historians to be doing the, the sorts of research that is uh, in addition to institution, institutional research um, and in addition to work that assumes that um, the cause of social justice is something to aspire towards in the future, which it is. And yet also there are these little patches of, um, of communities doing this kind of work um, in ways that um, creates traces and forms of historical evidence. That fall out of the the historians' um, very uh, orthodox um, apparatus of detection as well, and you're really getting at these so nicely in the book and documenting in new ways these little patches of of solidarity and, and how it's operating. And building on the question of um, destigmatizing overdose, I'm going to hand the floor to Samara. Hello, um, thank you so much for being here. So. What I was wondering, and I
0: know a lot of other students in class was wondering, was how can we, as students, contribute to destigmatizing the conversation around overdose and best support methods of recovery that reduce harm against users? Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are thinking about that. Um, So one of the things, since you're all obviously college students, um, that... um, that, that I have been interested in is how many of the people I ended up interviewing for the book, um, were, were people who, um, ended up becoming very, Uh, much what I would call evidence-based activists. So people who know how to write, who who know how to present information, who know how to document, who know how to produce statistical analyses, often quite sophisticated uh, statistical analysis, um, they ended up educating themselves uh, in order to do this work, right? So they they enter um, into... Evidence-based activism. Uh, many of them critical of evidence-based medicine being the only way uh, to really conduct um, one's oneself. But now you would look. You can look all across our country, and you see in public health departments, you see. Uh, people who have entered policies specifically to uh, begin to reduce harm. Uh, there seem to be so many ways in which the energy of um, individuals goes into this kind of collective effort. Can we, as a society, reduce the harm of, um, of opioids I mean opioids are totally necessary they're essential medicines uh, they are likely to be with us for a very long time unless we can figure out viable alternatives and so I would say figure out viable alternatives and figure out how to get um, messages further out to the public in some ways some of the most effective work that I've seen comes from people like yourselves who are basically saying we have to stop othering, um, the drug user, right? These are, these are people who use drugs and who have similar values and similar, um, ways of life as to our own. And so to the degree that you can humanize, make compassionate and emphasize the human rights of people who are involved in these kinds of practices and behaviors, I think that could go a long way towards. Doing the um, the other things that we clearly need to do in terms of destigmatization, um, making sure that people do know how to use naloxone and how to carry naloxone. Naloxone won't be the last. I would say harm reduction product out there. Um, We need, we are all harm reductionists now in the midst of this epidemic. And so figuring out what's going to be your style of that, your brand, your practices, your ways of organizing your lives uh, in order to um, reduce harm and negative consequences uh, wherever and however possible for you and the people um, who you consider your community, I think that's a very that's very important work and there's really a lifetime of it in front of you. So thank you for that question.
1: One of the uh, things that your answer also really points out, Nancy, is something that we've talked a lot about in, in this class in other contexts, which is that one of the most important things that people can perhaps do to work in Destigmatizing overdose and thinking about drug-related lives, as sort of the vocabulary um, that you give us in the book as well, is just to um, to to think clearly and to help other people think clearly about why some forms of evidence are taken seriously in some contexts and some are not, and so when we hear. Um, hear folks or, or see folks or read folks not taking seriously people's stories as a form of evidence. Think about the challenges um, and the orthodoxies of um, these more statistical um, dominant forms of evidence creation that aren't the only forms. They tend to be um, more just the expert medicalized community form. But, but the, you so nicely show how um, the peer communities are really collecting important forms of evidence um, that might not fit so easily, but capture the this, this situation much more, um, much more accurately, much more aptly.
0: And so- Yes, with- they're also trying to figure out how to frame um, evidence and frame their claims in ways that people uh, can identify with them uh, and can hear them.
1: Thinking about the, um, the future for overdose and what this might look like, I'm um, going to have Isabella take it away.
0: Hi, so one way naloxone has been normalized for me personally is by having naloxone training in my high school health class. Um, And then thinking about the future of naloxone and how to achieve widespread naloxone acceptance and use. We have sort of a slew of questions around this topic, um, because we know that that isn't normalized across the United States. So what do you think about implementing naloxone training in high school? do you think it would make a difference? Do you think it would be possible given the legislative work that must be done to amend school curriculums? And then lastly, do you think that there's a chance we will ever see Naloxone knowledge and use um, become as destigmatized as teaching, for example, a CPR class in a high school? I think we might be heading towards that. Um, It's interesting, uh, I think it was Clara who said earlier, um, talked about pricing, of naloxone. And the uh, one of the big problems, naloxone is an old drug, as you probably understand by now, um, the approval being almost 50 years ago at FDA. And, uh, and yet the naloxone delivery devices are quite expensive. And so in order for naloxone, Uh, and really harm reduction overdose prevention to become normalized in high schools is if they can afford it. And so I think we will need to watch for um, something that's a little bit more like a public health oriented or public interest pharmaceutical model. So uh, that would bring down the price of naloxone to the point where more uh, school districts could, in fact, afford it. Even public health departments um, are going to have a difficult time affording it now um, that they're putting so much resources into COVID-19 containment. And so this is a question of both resources and um, willingness and motivation. And so there are many people who frame uh, harm reduction as condoning uh, illegal behavior. And so there will always be, I think, in high schools in particular, um, groups that will oppose uh, harm reduction because they will equate it with um, condoning. You must have gone to a very uh, a, a high school in which that was not the case, or a high school in which uh, people had begun to realize that they better do something, uh, because a lot of our young people uh, are, in fact, uh, and actually a lot of people might age, like uh, late 40s and early 50s, um, are unfortunately dying of um, opioid overdose to the point where longevity among those ages in this country has declined considerably. Um, And so I think that your question is a, a really interesting one. And I, I would love to know where where you come from uh, that uh, you're getting uh, uh, overdose prevention training in high school. Uh, but I think it's it, it needs to happen in so many places. And I think the other thing that that brings up is the unevenness, which someone uh, noted a little bit earlier in our conversation, the unevenness of, of where is naloxone and where are opioids. These are very local local epidemics and our nationalized kind of discourse does not really pay sufficient attention to how localized these are. Um, For instance, uh, we all hear a lot about fentanyl. Now there has been a fentanyl um, overdose epidemic in Estonia uh, for 20 years. And we didn't have one here until 2013 beginning in 2013 you see a huge increase in fentanyl overdose deaths and you know what most of those that that's exactly what accounts for the rise in african american overdose deaths is that influx of fentanyl into the us heroin supply and stimulant supply in 2013 and so now i think we face a really different picture a really different problem, right? Where we must, um, make naloxone at least as available as we've made fentanyl. And we have managed to make fentanyl so available and so ubiquitous, right? That Now we better do the same with naloxone.
1: I love that challenge. That's such a great parallel, Nancy. That's a great, gosh. Um, just to wrap up, um, the, the book really is um, also interesting and important for us to read because of the way that you figure yourself um, as a partisan in the discussion and yet also a, um, a trustworthy, clear, clear-eyed observer and in direct dialogue with the reader. So really encouraging the reader to, to think through these, these questions in these ways. And um, on some of the final pages, you actually address the reader directly. And I'm going to quote you here, where you say, where did you start to feel ambivalent as a reader of this book um, about naloxone as a technology of solidarity? And that's the end of the quote. And then and then seeing how you um, are thinking about social justice yourself and uh, trying to work on, on this book both as a, um, a, a hard-nosed historian but also as someone who is a hard-nosed historian with a project of social justice in mind. And so here, I'm just gonna close with your final sentences in which you, you um, invoke a line from one of the activist organizations, the Chicago Recovery Alliance, about any positive change, any positive change. And you write, Harm reduction is a broad approach that may be adapted to prevent many kinds of social suffering through close attention to the people, places, and things that matter. Starting from what matters most, change the world to reduce harms that we know well. Any positive change will make us more human. And I just thought that was beautiful and really um, nicely written. So thank you so much for this fantastic book and um, for your generosity with this conversation today.
0: Well, you're very welcome. And I want to just say any positive change has become a bit of a mantra in the harm reduction movement. Uh, Dan Big uh, credits that line uh, to the person who galvanized him into action, uh, the death of his friend, John uh, Zyler. And so I think it's important. Uh, it's an important way of talking to one another uh, to just support any positive change. Thank you.